You're listening to the IC Interviews. We're very lucky to have Keith Ashworth-Lord with us today. He is Chief Investment Officer at Sanford Deland Asset Management. That's the company behind the hugely successful UK Buffetology Equity Fund, a name that has generated substantial returns for investors in recent years. We speak to Keith about a wide range of highly topical subjects, from the deep unpopularity of the UK market to what Keith learned from his biggest investment mistakes and how his approach has evolved during the pandemic and over the longer run. So uh, the funds that you and your colleagues work on um, have made some really very strong returns uh, from the UK market in recent years. Um, But more broadly, of course, uh, the UK market has been one that people have been extremely negative on uh, in recent years, especially this year. Uh, we've got the Brexit uncertainty rolling on, had a difficult pandemic, got a market that is largely, you could argue, exposed perhaps from the wrong trend, such as energy. Um, how would you kind of counter all of that negative sentiment? Very easily, Dave. This country is a great place to invest in. Um, we've got the time zone. We've got the universal language of business in English. Uh, we've got the entrepreneurial skills. Uh, we've got the academies, the universities, uh, we've, we've got the legal system, we've got the accounting standards. The, the UK is probably second only to the States as a place to do business in. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, as you rightly say, the negativities are, are coming to the fore and people mm. are, are thinking that the country is going to hell in a handcart. Uh, my own view is it's a wonderful opportunity at the moment. And I would just say, don't bet against the UK. Do you do you actually find it um, a, a better environment in which to invest when everyone kind of hates the market you're you're focused on? Oh, definitely. I mean, the opportunities that you get, and especially at the smaller company end, you know, people people saying, "Oh, they're all domestically focused. They're in the crosshairs of Brexit and everything else." It's an absolute load of trash. Uh, the reality is that a lot of our smaller companies are global players. Uh, you know, we've got we've got three in the fund. We've got Focus Right. We've got AB Dynamics. We've got Bioventix. You know, where ten percent or less of their revenues come from the UK, and they are global businesses. Unfortunately, people don't see that. So the shares get hammered. Uh, the markets underperforming. Bosses on the continent and Wall Street. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity! This is exactly what I like. You know, as Buffett says. Be greedy when others are fearful. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good point. But I suppose um, the the question is kind of um, if you are buying bargains, when do they stop being a bargain, and when do they start being a kind of a good performer? And do you do you see any kind of catalyst for that mood, that dark mood, to kind of lift from the UK? Uh, yes, I do actually see a catalyst for that, and I, I think it, it would be the successful rollout of the vaccine. Uh, and getting getting the country back to some semblance of normality and away from this panic around the pandemic uh, to allow the economy to recover. I've got to tell you, I couldn't believe that in, in a liberal democracy like ours, uh, the, the government would get away with crashing the economy to save a few lives. Uh, I, I was just really, really uh, surprised at, at what happened. And I think getting back to some semblance of normality and, and stop people being so fearful um, will be the catalyst for, for A, the economy to rebound, but, but B, people to start feeling a lot better than they have in 2020. 
And does, I mean, do you think that would be a kind of immediate rebound? I mean, on the other side, some people do argue that maybe um, it'll be slower than that. There'll be problems. You'll still have lingering unemployment. You'll have many, uh, you know, factors that will get in the way of it being a really quick kind of snapback. Yeah, I mean, that's the pessimistic outlook, isn't it? That's the downside. My own feeling is that, you know, if, if you take the sort of central predictions, I think the if I could put it this way, the danger is on the upside that things will bounce back a lot faster uh, than, than perhaps pundits are giving giving credit for or economists are giving credit for. Uh, my, my own feeling is that a, a lot of what we've seen, uh, you know, if you look at what's happened this week with, with Arcadia, with Debenhams, it was going to happen anyway. All that the pandemic's done is just um, speeded things up, um, not necessarily in an economic sense, but in a, in a sort of a social sense and, a, and a, you know, sort of zombie companies going to the wall, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so my own feeling is that the, the, the potential surprises are going to be more on the upside than the downside. So you're, you're potentially seeing some of that creative destruction that perhaps we missed out on um after the financial crash absolutely spot on yeah i mean you know the life support of low interest rates has kept an awful lot of businesses going that perhaps otherwise would have and should have gone to the wall you know it's it's economic darwinism um Mm. this whole thing you know and we get renewal so if you look at the retail sector you know i mentioned there arcadia and debenhams they've been taken over by models like boohoo and, and and asos uh, which which are much more in tune with the modern economy than some of those um, you know physical uh, stores were previously. It's an interesting point about the the modern economy because I guess one criticism of the UK market is, um, as someone put it to me yesterday, is it's it's an old fashioned market. You have many kind of sectors that are perhaps ex growth. To what extent do you see those kind of new world trends coming through in UK market? Good question. I mean, I'm probably not the best person to ask about this because, um, in terms of technology companies, uh, I, I don't I don't have as many in there. I'm, I'm still a little bit old economy with my my portfolio, as indeed as indeed is, is Warren Buffett with his. So, I, I think you know, technology technology is a force to be harnessed rather than sort of a, a thing on its own. Um, but I do I do see the scope for a lot of what's happened over this last what nine months having changed the world for good you know i mean just think think what it must be like to be, be running a bus service or a train or or whatever in in the age of zoom and teams and things like that you know and in terms of how we work from home and how we dress at home i wouldn't like to be a tie manufacturer at the moment i think ties are going to be a thing of the past when this is all over <laughs> So you know, th- there's a lot going on. There's a lot. There's a lot of technology being used um, that, that, that I wouldn't say is pure technology. It's applied technology. Uh, so so I don't. I don't really think. You know, I, I don't think the British economy is 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 necessarily old economy. I mean, good lord, just look at what we've done with a vaccine. You know, I mean, we're leading the world in in rolling it out. We've AstraZeneca and Oxford University have developed one. You know, we're, we're not behind the door at all. And, and for what it's worth, you know, I think once we shake off the dead hand of the EU completely, uh, I think Britain will be in a great place to, to to forge, you know, forge its own identity and move forward. In terms of both, um, so the pandemic um, 
has accelerated some of those trends um, and kind of, I suppose, using tech um, and yeah, accelerated many other trends. And as you suggest, it's perhaps accelerated some negative trends, some declines. Um, how has that affected your investment approach? I mean, are there things you've had to um, focus on that kind of you wouldn't before? Um, and are there are there stocks and sectors that you've had to kind of pay more attention to um, given the developments this year? Absolutely. Um, the first thing that we did uh, when 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 this whole lockdown started was we looked at our portfolios and said, are the businesses in there that, that aren't going to come out the other side, you know, because of lockdown, you know, think retail, think hospitality, think travel, leisure, that sort of thing. And we looked at that and we did we did actually kick out an awful lot of direct customer facing businesses. So we were already getting out of revolution bars. We got the last of that away. Uh, we, we got rid of our holding in restaurant group. We sold our holding in next. Uh, the, the only the only retail business that we've got left. Well, it's not really retail is games workshop. Uh, which is not a, a standard retailer at all. It's a, it's a niche business. It's a very special business, um, and we so we we did actually prune the portfolio. And if that taught me anything, it, it taught me at last after thirty five years in this that I'm never going to make much money out of retail and directly consumer facing businesses where you know fashion and fad is the trend. Uh, this this year's hot number is next year's has been. Um, so so that was something we did. Uh, and we had to look very hard at our holding in Jet2, um, which we're perfectly happy with. We, we thought they, they were realistic. They, you know, they, they had the strength of the balance sheet. Uh, they did everything right, cancelled the dividend, sold Fowler Welsh, raised some money, got in early, got in big. Um, so we, we were perfectly happy with that. But, yeah, I mean, we, we literally looked at everything in the portfolio and said, is, is any of this in danger? And the answer was, yes, we thought one or two bits were. Uh, why were we in them? Well, no, I don't think anybody saw this coming. This was a black swan event that we've had with uh, with the pandemic. And more, more importantly, more, more pertaining to it, uh, the government's response, the public policy response to it, I don't think anybody could have expected, as I said, that you know, you would lock down the economy, you would crash the economy to, to save to save a few lives. So you think you're you're done with retail full stop in those kind of sectors? Well, I, I always try to learn by my mistakes. And if, if I haven't learned from this one, why didn't you just take me out and shoot me? You know, I mean, I'll never learn. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's been a fundamental change of attitude. Uh, and then you have to look at the other side. You have to say, well, you know, well, what what what's the good? What's the upside? And and the upside is businesses with some technology where you know there's recurring revenues or there's locked in customers. Um, the, the classic stuff has really come to the come to the surface, like the cream on the milk. Um, we're looking much more at at those sort of businesses now uh, going forwards. Any sort of examples, anything you previously wouldn't really have bothered with or would have overlooked that now you think this is a great business? I don't think there's anything um, specifically that we wouldn't have bothered with. But, you know, I look at the portfolio and and I want more businesses like Craneware in there, the, the software business, U.S. healthcare business. Uh, I want more businesses like RM uh, linked to the educational sector, you know, and, and quite 
quite a degree of, uh, of technological application there. Um, businesses like NCC Group with cybersecurity, it's that type of business, things that are, are really geared up to what I think the economy might look like going forward rather than what it looked like going backwards. On that point, um, I guess this year we've really seen a, a further polarisation of the markets um, and you've seen that in valuations. The cheap parts of the UK market are even cheaper on certain metrics and again, you're kind of paying up for quality or growth or however you want to term it. Um, in previous uh, kind of discussions, your your colleague Andrew Vaughan has, has mentioned the fact that he's more lenient on valuations sorry, than you. Given all that's happened, do you think you're becoming more relaxed about prices? Would you be more willing to pay pay up for for something good? Yeah, that's a good point because I mean, if you've got the time horizon that we've got, you know, I mean, we, when we invest, we we aim to invest for life, you know, like Catholic marriage. Um, and if you've got a ten or twenty year time horizon, then you know sometimes you might you might be paying a, a fair valuation rather than a than a really attractive one to get on board uh on board the investment and you might have to accept to yourself that well it could be it could be 12 months of going nowhere but we know on the long run the ride you know over that period of time that investment horizon is going to be good so i think you know, I, I possibly am more relaxed about valuation than i once was I've never been a Ben Graham. I've never, I've never sort of looked for things that are dirt cheap that I can ride up to fair value and then sell. That's not not been my approach. My approach has always been to find great businesses, quality businesses, and then pay a workmanlike price for them. So not overpay, but equally, you know, I think Andrew has got a point that when when you're investing for ten or twenty years time horizon, um, you you can afford to be slightly more lenient on what you're prepared to pay. Uh, to get on board the bus. So I guess that's the buying side. Um, of course, your approach, you, you tend to buy a very small number of stocks. Um, you tend to look for, I guess you described Games Workshop as a, a multi-bagger. It's made huge returns since you first 30, invested. 30 bagger. 30 bagger. Um, what, uh, if you have kind of a winning stock, what would prompt you to, to actually sell? There's two things, really. Uh, number one, is that something has changed, it's got fundamentally worse and it ain't about to get better anytime soon. And that could be almost anything. It could be it could be disruption, it could be market related, it could be competition related, it could be a change in management, it could be regulatory, it could be almost anything. But basically we judge that something has changed, uh, it's got worse and we don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. And that would be one reason why we would, we would say au revoir to a holding. The other one is a lot more personal. It's basically that that uh, I've messed up. I've got us into something that is pretty obvious now. With with you know with the benefit of holding it and owning it, it's not what I thought it was. So I mean, an example of the of the first one, the first cell discipline would be Domino's Pizza under David Wilde, where changes were going on in the business model. Uh, what you know, with the franchisees, etc. There were a whole load of amber flags there why we, we chose to sell um, Domino's Pizza, having been great fans of it under the previous management, the dream team of sort of Hemsley, Moore and Ginsburg. Um, so that, that would be an example of the first one. The second one, a great example where we lost, we lost a shed load of money was Dignity. Uh, and that was my fault because I thought I knew the funeral services industry very well. Um, 
what I'd missed completely was the fact that you had price comparison websites uh, springing up and suddenly that direct face-to-face uh, conversation with the funeral director and, and the bereaved uh, wasn't taking place. Pe- people had price transparency without having to go and haggle the bill. So what was a, a very price inelastic industry had been disrupted into actually quite a price competitive industry. Uh, and, and that was my fault. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't spot those, those, um, comparison websites coming up uh and the result was i lost half my money uh it's the worst worst outcome the funds had in any individual company uh and, and it was all my fault so those would be the two reasons well what did you learn from dignity and um, what we sort of key takeaways? oh well the first i'll tell you the first thing andrew and i did, and eric our chief analyst did was we looked at the portfolios and we said could this happen with any of the other businesses you know, where we've missed something, some disruptive uh, force. And what what I always try to do whenever I make a mistake, and Lord knows I've made enough in the last 10 years, I could point you to half a dozen others. You've just got to rub your nose in it and you've got to say, what do I learn from this? What did I get wrong? And what must I not do again to, to repeat the felon, as it were? It's what Charlie Munger says. He says, just rub your nose in it. Uh, so we, we did that. We, we went through the portfolios and looked if there was anything else that we thought was in in imminent danger of being disrupted. And in terms of sales, I guess another reason fund managers sell holdings is because of um, acquisitions. Um, Mm. What are your, what are your general thoughts on um, kind of M&A and how it affects your portfolio? And do you have any thoughts on kind of, I guess one issue with the UK market is you've had foreign uh, companies kind of gobbling up promising UK names. Yeah, and, and a lot of that is because the UK market is so relatively cheap. Um, that, that's why that's been happening, I can tell you. Um, yeah, what's my view on acquisitions? I mean, it's all about rational allocation of capital, which we see as the number one task for any manager. Uh, and, and our ideal is always managers who reinvest retained earnings at high marginal returns to generate future organic growth. That's always our big one. But we, we don't have any problem with managers who find bolt-on acquisitions maybe in consolidating industries. You know, so an acquisition that maybe takes you into a new specialization or adds some know-how, takes you into a new market or the synergies. Uh, we think we think that's a perfectly rational allocation of capital. Uh, but where we, we always get wary is when you see these huge transformational acquisitions, as they're always termed, uh, you know, where... Quite honestly, in my in my thirty odd years experience in this industry, uh, I reckon nine out of ten of those huge transformational acquisitions don't really add very much uh, shareholder value, or maybe even destroy shareholder value. Uh, so I'm always on guard there. Uh, we've got two companies in the portfolio: RWS Holdings and Croder International, that actually have been very successful making large acquisitions, and, and as a result of those, they they are the businesses that they are today. Uh, but but for, for every one of those, I could probably point you to nine where it's gone wrong. And I guess the course celebra of the whole thing has to be going back to the 90s when Rent-A-Kill bought BET to get its hands on initial. It took Rent-A-Kill 20 years to get back to where it was. Such was the destruction of shareholder value. So we are we are very wary of acquisitions. We look very hard at them when when they're made. Uh, and, I, and I have to say, we do actually prefer the, the smaller bolt-ons to the sort of big transformational um, acquisitions. One of your major holdings in Buffetology is, of course, Line Trust, and that's a very acquisitive company. 
Um, but pa- perhaps you will say they're kind of smaller bolt-ons. But what are what are they doing right in that respect? Oh, I, I think the thing that attracted me to Lion Trust in the first instance was not just the fact it was dirt cheap selling at point seven five EV to uh, EBITDA, but uh, sorry, not to EBITDA, EV to assets under management. Uh, but actually the culture of the business. Um, culturally, it's a very similar business to my own, to Sanford Deland, uh, and, and I could spot that. It was coming off a period when it had a pretty rough ride um, under under um, John Hines and, and Vinnie Abril. It was turning round. So we were back in sort of 2012 when we first bought that. Uh, and you looked at it, and the the, the, the funds were performing well. They were all sort of top quartile over one, three, five years. So you knew you knew the underlying duck was paddling very hard. Um, and it, it just it just felt right. And the interesting thing is we were we were, we were exhorted by sell side brokers to switch Lion Trust into Premier Mitem. I had that so many times and at the time Lion Trust was probably about a five bagger for us. Um, Thank goodness I didn't do that because Lion Trust is now a 15-bagger for us and Premier Mighton's gone virtually nowhere. Um, so, you know, that was an example of a quality business that, that to me, w- was an industry leader, even though it was relatively small, uh, and a business that you can understand. I mean, we're in fund management, so understanding another fund manager is not exactly rocket science. Asset management does seem to me like an area where there have been plenty of big M&A events and they don't seem to have paid off so far at least mm. yeah I, I i know what you're saying i mean the, the, there's been there's been one or two i suppose that have worked out but the, but the, a lot of it is just consolidation and cost cutting and the like i mean you you won't be surprised to know sanford delanders had approaches it's had it's had uh, three or four approaches over the last 10 years uh, but we're not really interested in that game. We we want to play our own pharaoh and we want to create a culture whereby people who work in the business feel that they are wanted and encouraged. Uh, and I'm not sure all asset managers do that. I think there's a great thing for people like myself or Terry Smith or Nick Drain who actually own their businesses as well as, as manage funds for, for those businesses. We don't have that same, um, what shall I say, need to conform you know the the career risk does not exist with us i mean basically if we get it wrong our clients just desert us we don't come in on a monday morning and find a black sack on the desk with clear goods and get out uh which i'm afraid to say in the big houses you do get that and if you underperform over a a quarter or or a half year suddenly you find you're, you're out of the job uh businesses you know businesses that are manager owned don't have that pressure, which is why I think, you know, that, that the three I've mentioned ourselves and and uh, Linsell Train and, and Fundsmith, uh, I think that's why we can perform because we can do things differently. And that's what you've got to do in asset management. Speaking of Sanford Deland, um, you've had major success with the, the Buffetology Fund now. Um, how big is it? Big is, it? is it one and a half billion? It's just, it's just slightly under one and a half billion at the moment. 1.47 billion, I think it is last night. So that's that's grown significantly in recent years. Um, I suppose what's interesting, and you've been very open about this, is it does change what you can hold. You can't really kind of go into some of those much smaller companies any any uh, any longer. Is it fair to say now then that the Buffetology Fund uh, perhaps offers lower returns but low volatility as well? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, it's still it's still a waterfront fund. You know, we've still in the last two years we've we've added RM to it, which is a small company. We've added Paypoint, which is a small company. Uh, we've added some bigger ones, you know, Experian and London Stock Exchange over the last three years. But we're, we're still very much uh, pursuing a waterfront approach, an all cap approach. It's just that to, to to get the holdings sometimes takes a little bit longer than it used to do. But the only thing we've 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 actually positively said no, we're not going to do anymore is the micro caps that I define as under a hundred million, and I probably should stretch that to a hundred and fifty million market cap. The simple fact is, you know, we end up, we end up owning twenty percent of the company, uh, but the the, the 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 holding only accounts for like half a percent of the NAV of the fund. Uh, and so even if it doubled, you know, it's never going to move the dial on the fund performance. So we've had to accept that and we've had to move away from that micro cap scale. But we're still investing in small caps, mid caps, big caps, large caps, mega caps. It's still a waterfront, but we just have to be sometimes a little bit more patient in establishing the holding. So what is the mix of markets in the fund at the minute? Um, we've got. 20 this is at, as at the end of the month of November we had 21 and a half percent of the portfolio in FTSE 100 companies we had uh, 27 percent in FTSE 250s uh, we had uh, 13 percent in small caps and fledglings so fully listed small cap fledgling uh, 26 percent on aim of which that that varies. I mean, it varies from very small to big businesses like RWS Holdings above two billion market cap, and we had two S and P five hundred companies in there, which were, were again were about six percent of the fund, and the balance is cash. So pretty pretty broad spread, uh, with with a slight a slight orientation now towards FTSE three fifties. I was going to ask kind of where you're where you're currently kind of finding most opportunities. Is that kind of like what segment of the markets at the minute are you kind of finding the most interesting companies? Um, I don't think there's any any particular sector of the market that we are. I mean, if if you look if you look back at what we've done most recently, the businesses that we've put in the portfolio uh, latterly, we've got um, we've got Experian, Rollins, US pest control business, uh, Paypoint. London Stock Exchange, RM, as I've mentioned, SoftCat and HomeServe. So, I mean, there's a real mix there, you know, of, of software and computer businesses, support services business, uh, financial services. Uh, it's, it's, it's always the case that we just look for the great business and it doesn't really matter what sector it's in. All we're interested in is are the markets that they're serving growth markets? Do they have scope for market share gains within those markets? And more to the point, you know, what's the competitive landscape? And do do the numbers stack up? You know, is the return to equity high? Is the cash conversion from uh, accounting earnings high? Is the balance sheet robust? And it's not a case of thematic investment where we think, oh, you know, that's an area of, of the economy that's set to grow. Let's see what we can find in there. Um, I think we've only ever done that once, and it, 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 was, it was not a wonderful experience. We we looked at, at artificial intelligence and said, what, what's available that's in that sort of area? And we didn't really come up with anything much um, other than we, we thought, well, Relex has got some some interesting 
exposure to that area. We did actually buy relics for both funds. Uh, but but thematic investing is not really our bag. It's complete bottom-up investing that we're doing. In, in terms of your, so you use the whole business perspective investing philosophy. Um, have you, given there have been some interesting changes, I suppose, in how people judge companies. For example, um, people now pay more attention to things like intangible assets. Um, over time, have you had to kind of tweak the approach at all or kind of add any criteria in or anything like that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a static thing. We, we, we're using the same the same overarching methodology, investment philosophy that we, we well, I've used for 25 years, but it does develop. So, for example, we, we've in, in the last five years, we've started to pay more attention to things like um, the, the debtor profile, you know, how, how overdue are the debts, uh, what provisioning has been made against them. Uh, to protect against write-offs. We've also started to look more at um, what's the level of intangible assets compared to distributable reserves. Because if you get a write-off there, that, that could write off your distributable reserves. If you've got 150% intangible assets of, 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 um, of, of distributable reserves, retained equity, then you could have a problem if you know, if, if the intangible assets prove not to be worth very much. So there's, there's all sorts of areas like that where we've, we've made minor tweaks, introduced new things, um, usually in response to something we've seen in the market. So we've seen something go wrong somewhere. And we thought, oh, what would have told us that leading up to that? And we, we'll introduce that into our process, into our into our uh, operating and financial ratio analysis. So, yeah, it's it's a... It, it's, it, I wouldn't say it's a moving feast, but it's something that we do polish and burnish regularly. Mm. Given the uh, the rise of ESG and the effect that that is having now on kind of company valuations, is is that starting to feed into your your criteria? That is a very very pertinent question, Dave. And the reason for that uh, is you're quite right. It's getting it's getting more and more attention. We are not an an, an overt ESG house. But we do. We've always taken it into consideration, basically, because if you are if you're looking for businesses that you're going to hold for 10 or 20 years, you have to be pretty sure that they're doing the right thing or they might not be around. But what we have done or or what 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 Eric Burns and David Beggs, two of our analysts, have done is we've actually worked up a a scorecard, an ESG scorecard, which, which ranks, there's five things we're asking in, on the subject of social, environmental and governance. And we're actually scoring businesses on that. And the interesting thing is the, the, the scorecard that we produce, we gave that to one of our businesses. I'm not going to say which one, but we gave it to one of our businesses that we felt was scoring relatively low um, on ESG criteria. And the FD of that business said it was the most useful feedback he'd ever had from any of his investors, uh, which, which is quite an accolade, given that we are not an ESG house, but we do have an ESG overlay. And basically, we score things A, A is great, B is, B is average, C is less than average. And we have D, which if you get a D, I mean, it's uninvestable as far as we're concerned. And again, I'm not going to mention names, but there's one business that we looked at that looked like it, 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 was, it was going to be good for us on terms of economics and financial. But when we looked at the related party transactions that were going on in that business in, in you know, sort of note 27 to the accounts, suddenly 
it was uninvestable because of what was going on, you know, stud farms in Ireland and private jets and uh, supporting football companies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the other thing we do on the governance side, because we tend to hold large holdings in some of our smaller and medium-sized companies, they come to us with remuneration changes, policies, and they do consult with us and we engage with them. Um, so th- there is there is a bit of e- ESG overlay going on, even though we don't sort of shout it from the rooftops. Well, um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Cheers. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.